Welcome everyone to Foresight's Existential Hope Podcast. This is a little bit of an unusual podcast by which we actually talk about, by which we invite uh, our much appreciated senior fellows uh, and other special guests um, to not ask them the normal question about what they're working on um, uh, and 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 how we can actually like help steer um, scientific progress. But we want to invite a few. Uh, special folks to actually figure out like what would it look like uh, to push humanity towards positive futures. Um, and there's a few people that work on really outstanding, um, yeah, outstanding projects in this area. One of them is Lee. Uh, I think Lee needs very little introduction uh, in general. I think you really have made quite the name for you, uh, especially recently on a bunch of different podcasts. I encourage you all to check out Lex Friedman's podcast with me. I think you're the only one uh, that have, has made it on there, I think twice in a row, like within the span of a month or like or two months or something, um, uh, together with Sarah Walker, who uh, I've also had the pleasure to meet through, through you. So thanks for that. Um, tackling anything from, you know, computing, um, you, you know, which is really your forte. I hope we get to speak about that a little bit more today uh, to kind of like out there questions on the origin of life uh, and long-term futures on Mars and so forth. So you have a lot to say on a variety of different topics. Thanks a lot for joining. Um, most people here probably know uh, you, at least in a foresight context, from your work on computing. Um, and I really encourage you to check out that uh, seminar as well, if you're interested more in the technical aspects of that. Um, I recently uh, talked about that and showed a little video of you speaking on this uh, at a, a Breakthrough Computing com uh, series that uh, I spoke at, and people were like rather stunned um, by uh, by what you're working on there. So I'm hoping we get into that a bit. Okay, generally you're quite outspoken, so I don't think uh, we'll have um, uh, we'll run out of topics to talk about today. I'm really really happy that you're here. Thank you so much for joining and for the wonderful work you do. And maybe as an intro, you can bring us up to speed. Roughly, what are you working on uh, and what got you started? Kind of like your life story in three minutes. Um, uh, a, a, a difficult question, but uh, perhaps we start there. Um, life story in three minutes. Um, I'm a chemist. When I grew up, I was just interested in reality, I suppose. Um, and uh, I was very confused most of my childhood life about how things worked. So I took everything apart. Um, and I built my first computer when I was about eight years old that didn't work. And at the same time, I didn't work. I got my, my father brought me a ZX81, uh, and I got a chemistry set at the same time. And I was trying to put the, I remember coding this chemistry, the, the, the ZX81, wondering how could I code the chemistry set. And I guess I've only ever had one idea. And that's what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, 40 years or so is trying to code chemistry. Um, in the when I became an academic in Glasgow, Glasgow were very open-minded, and they let me um, bring people in uh, my lab who were just chemists, computer scientists, mathematicians, physicists, engineers. Uh, having that bunch of people around allowed me to kind of create some things with them. So I invented the concept of computing in 2012 to try and make an origin of life experiment that was expandable, and um, I couldn't get money for that. And so I turned it into a drop discovery rig and I got money for that. And that's how I built all the computing architectures. So, and I've built a company to go with that. I've got the origin of life stuff going. Um, the problem with origin of life is everyone's arguing about it because they think they, they want to do something special um, using existing chemistry. And actually, you need to find out new things. You need to explore new things. 
So I'm developing new theories for life, which appears to be holding out, which is still um, intrinsic complexity and reality for molecules. Um, so I've got a kind of complexity detector, a, a technology for origin of life, a technology for building robots for drug discovery. So I thought, well, what, can I flip it the other way around and use chemistry to do computation? And that's the other kind of bit that was mentioned, that we're using chemistry and kind of differentiable chemistry in solution, if you like, to do uh, to do uh, computation and maybe instantiate a new type of consciousness one day. Who knows? Brilliant. A bit longer. No, that's about three minutes. I'll stop there. Oh, man. Okay. We have so many different keywords now to like uh, to dive into. Um, I took notes, so we'll hit them all. Um, but maybe, you know, if you wanted to orient someone new working or like gradually entering your field, fields in plural, um, you know, what could could you give them a bird's eye view of what is even involved in the areas that you're working on? I know that yeah, like you touch on a, a variety of different things, but just like as someone new entering that space who may have not have a deep uh, understanding of chemistry already, like, you know, what's kind of the, the lay of the land? Oh, my gosh. Um, I think I would start with complex systems theory. Um, and I would then also trying to point people to, I don't know, a dead planet to think about Mars, the moon, and to say, what is, what do we need to do to turn a planet into a living system? I mean, uh, I think it, it wasn't me who said this, but it was a, a famous machine learning person says that, oh, do you throw fl- photons at a planet for a few billion years and it admits a Tesla roaster? So understanding how the planet is able to turn photons into evolution is probably... So I would probably let people, complex, complex theory and evolutionary theory probably be the place to start. And with a, with a healthy dose of computer science, a little bit of engineering, a little bit of chemistry. And basically I try and make things to understand them. So I would just encourage people to have a a fairly playful engineering approach to these problems rather than uh, trying to dress them up in advanced concepts that no one understands. Great. I think that's a general kind of like good brute force um, yeah, advice for life. I think um, if you think about, you know, I guess how you came to where you currently are, have there been any um, kind of like fundamental paradigm shifts um also have you contributed to any i mean i know that for example you just mentioned that when you started or when you were trying to do the origin of life um projects in 2012 right that that was the number i think that you uh, named that it was hard to get funding for do you think you could uh, get funding for it now or like was it necessary to dress it up in the under a different under different trojan horse like have there been any you know kind of like fundamental shifts where you're like okay we're now actually my field now looks different yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, I mean, in the end, I never really needed to dress it up. I realized that chemistry wasn't programmable. So doing um, so doing programming chemistry and then using the technology for origin of life, I'm straight up honest about. So I said to the funders, I will use origin, I will use the programmable chemistry to be target-based and then knowing full well I can traverse it and go um, on target-based. But asking me if I've done anything interesting, I don't know. <laughs> um I I feel what I like them. I like the idea. I like the fact that we're able to now program the robot to make drugs and discover new reactions. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, I I think assembly theory might be pretty interesting because it basically gives a new it, it, it completes a problem that exists in physics. But um, 
And, and it's really hard, right? Physics, physics, no, mainstream physics has not accepted this for a long time, but I think it's probably right. I don't mean this from an arrogant point of view. I just mean this from an incompleteness of our understanding of reality. Um, and the contributions that I think are most interest me are the ones where I have an intersection of lots of different areas. Um, and there's, and I can only really tell you about what I'm doing next. I'm not really very good at saying I did this. Am I not so awesome? Um, and I think that that's that's kind of hard. But but I suppose using building 3D printers in 2012, 2013 with engineers to then turn those into small chemistry labs conceptually shifted the way I would think about coding matter. So that's when I realized that encoding NASA, you know, I've learned foresight for a long time and then foresight now now and like, yeah, yeah, you can code stuff, but you can't really because it's too hard and SPM doesn't work. And then, then I suddenly realized that probably you can code because it's monk, it's kind of terminals all the way down. Like if I can code a 3D printer to do a reaction and then at the nanoscale, that reaction is doing something that I am controlling nanoscale chemistry and I am making things. So um, I'm just really up the standard understood that I could start to control things much more precisely, which is kind of awesome. But yeah, I'm not very good at saying what well, does any good you judge it. I'm just I'm I'm just basically blindly wandering around down the money, spend money on doing interesting things and hope people think I can continue. Wonderful. Well maybe we dig deeper into that a bit. Like not everyone here, especially listening to this podcast, really knows what computing is. I know that you kind of like, you know, describe the rough edges of it. But how would you describe that to a layperson? Like, what is this about? What can you do with it now? And what could you do with it uh, a little uh, a little in the future? Yeah, so the term computing is a term or computation. What is computation is kind of interesting, right? Because, you know, lots of people make up learners to make the sound good. And, uh, and I try desperately not to do that. But if you think about what computation is, computation is the act of basically taking an algorithm with some data and that algorithm will process that data and give you a reliable output. And as long as you can instantiate that algorithm on any qualified hardware, typically a true and complete, or almost true and complete, so I mean for the memory, you, it provides well, you know, exactly. So what is computing? Computing is the act of basically um, taking some chemical code with some molecules and reliably turning those molecules into a product um, on, a, on a standardized hardware. That's the trick on a standardized hardware. Same with computing. You need a standardized hardware that has some kind of relationship. So, and I realized that was probably a really important thing because chemists are geniuses of making molecules, but they all do it in slightly different ways, slightly different standards, slightly different things, which means not everything is, is uniformly reproducible. So the penny really dropped when I thought, oh, I will basically, I had to build this programming language. It took me a couple of weeks to write, actually, many years to refine, a, a complete programming language for stuff um, that would compile or compile to the architecture precisely to get the right answer. And that's not easy conceptually because you're basically having to mix together concepts from chemistry, um, um, computer, computer science theory, which is hard, and programming languages. Um, and so all the computer scientists think the chemistry is done programmable when you just draw a graph. All the chemists think the programming chemistry is impossible, that they have to just read the literature. And, you know, you have all these people that have completely different views. And on this kind of little small person in the middle going, oh, yeah, I've done this thing, this thing, and this thing. I think it works. So to the layperson, take, 
you want to be, I go to your robot and say, make Tylenol. And it then will just download, take the, take the input reagents or um, materials, process them, and then give you an outcome. And that outcome is indistinguishable from the outcome that you get any, if it was done on, you know, N different devices. So I think that covers it. But it, yeah, I've repeated about three times. So I think I've said the same thing each time. So hopefully that's good. It's gradually sinking in. And um, to make it more concrete, what company is it that, you know, you've kind of like, uh, that you found a base on this? Yeah, so I founded a company called Chemify, which is actually um, going to commercialize it. But more importantly, actually, um, I've got this standard programming language I'm getting out there and Schmidt Futures have given me um, uh, some funding to basically get the, the, get the, the, the concept out there, get people using it. The company's going to monetize it. And academically, I'm going to build on it and try and explore science and encode new um, ideas scientifically in this programming language. You can really think about it as a Python for chemistry. Literally, that's what it is. So it's an entire tool chain, Python for chemistry. And Chemify is basically building the robots that will make that a commercial reality because I've been building robots now for like at least 10 years. And I try and do my best to make them reproducible. The SIs are extensive, but people don't tend to copy what we've done. And, and so I figured the only way to really get it out there and really make a difference is to make the company and also make a non-profit um, and also carry on doing academia in all my different other lives. I'm also writing a textbook, advanced undergraduate textbook on computation, which I've pretty much finished, which should basically tell you all you need to know. Great. And uh, along that path, have you figured out much about the origin of life? Yeah. I mean, the origin of life, I think, is... Um, is um, actually a really tractable problem now. Um, and that, when you look at the complexity of a cell, you think, oh, my gosh, that's really impossible. But let me take you, before I talk about the origin of life, let me talk about the origin of the eye and the blind watch major. So lots of, lots of people would say that um, a watch is an impossible thing in the present, an evidence of creationism. Um, but if you take an eye... Um, or rudimentary eye, you can evolve an eye in just a few um, um, generations. And if, so certain people, even chemists, you know, I think George Whiteside, a very famous chemist at Harvard, would say, you know, I, the cell is just impossibly complicated. The origin of life must have been a really difficult. I don't think that's correct. I think that chemists don't understand a really important word called selection. And so that what we found out through our chemistry and looking at molecules, it's possible to see selection going on um, in the world before there's evolution. So selection creates the, the, the architecture that builds evolutionary machines. And, and that's one of the reasons why I became fascinated with nanomachines, actually, that, you know, human beings, abstractors making machines by hand. I want to know how the universe evolved nanomachines from scratch with no human. You know, there's no nanoscience or no one doing the nanoscience. How did that happen? Well, it happened through selection and over layers to produce the complex cell. So probably the phenomena that, well, not probably, the phenomena that's producing life is very easy to study, and we're studying in my lab right now and making pretty big leaps. There are some problems. There's cultural problems, dogmatic problems, and people going, la, 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 I don't believe you. But data beats um, dogma. Okay, so maybe go a bit into the depth of the eye. So, um, so in terms of 
what you want to be able to do is to ask, um, can I understand the path to the origin of life in chemical space? So, and what we've worked out in my lab and with other labs as well, collaborators like you mentioned Sarah Walker earlier and ASU, um, that it's possible to, by doing random chemistry almost, or chemistry in the environment, you can start to see how the molecules remember the environment they were in. And so that's kind of interesting. And what we're showing in the lab actually is that you can generate much complexity and with Miliuri. In fact, the Miliuri is not a dead end. It generates huge number of complex molecules, but it's a dead end in glass. But if you put in minerals and you do recursion, you actually get incredible complexity. And so what are the three components you need for an origin of life experiment? You need simple chemistry, number one. You need heterogeneity, the Earth's crust, atmosphere, liquids, and so on, number two. And number three, you need recursions, repeat cycles. And that's what you need. And at some point, existence does the job for you. The fact that objects start to exist in time due to memory is what creates life. The universe literally creates its own consciousness. It's kind of bizarre. Well, there's a really wonderful new book, I think, from Ed Young on how animals sense, how, how different animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us, uh, which goes also into a bit of the depth uh, on the kind of like problem of the eye and the, um, and, and the creationist views of those versus like evolutionary views. And I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, what, Uh, the evolution of different life forms also can tell us about the different realms and like their sensory organs about like other things we may not see. So I wonder if you, you know, want to take us just on a quick recap of perhaps some of the things that you and Sarah discussed um, on the Lex Friedman podcast, you know, what are, what, what, if anything, and I know it's hard to summarize, but what, if anything, can we tell maybe even from your research on the origin of life on like, you know, long-term futures, of human and potentially other alien life forms. Um, is there anything that, you know, like, do you want to venture out and make some speculatory guesses here? Yeah, I mean, I can well, I can tell you some, some things that I'm pretty sure about, that I'm pretty sure that life on Earth or the biology, sorry, the precise chemistry associated with biology and then life on Earth. So I guess the, the, the there's the chemistry of life, there's the biology of life, and there's life like the phenomena of life, living stuff, and then biology and chemistry. That the, the chemistry and biology on Earth is absolutely unique to Earth because it's so continuing. So what that means is that when we do come in contact with aliens, and I guess we will, either remotely or directly. You said they, when, not if. When? No, when. If we're not, we should be we should be able to, right? With James Webb, we fill the telescopes. Um, it's not that origin of life events happening everywhere. I don't think it's going to be that difficult to get contact with an alien life form in the next millennia say right it should be much earlier even if we end up making them in the lab um and um and that's be, but the one thing we can be sure about is that they're going to be so incredibly different we're going to have to use new types of theory to understand them that they're there now we might choose to basically say oh my god they're too different right they could be just so wild we need to focus find use james webb or whatever other observatories Find planets, so a bit like Earth, same mass, same gravity, same distance from the sun, so we have a chance of finding creatures like us that use a normal type of metabolism that we can even just recognize with our eyes, right? Because I think selection will produce so many wild things, we just have no idea how contingent we are. So I would 
take transit to guess that if we look at planets that are rocky with water, similar distance to the sun, similar number of photons, similar amount of time, you'll find life forms of a similar kind of kinetic ability to move around on the same time scale, and therefore we'll have a chance of recognizing them as life forms and then going from a remote sense into actual seeing them. So I'm pretty confident we will encounter aliens, right? Um, from what I can see of the chemistry, because there's nothing in chemistry that, about, that is preventing life, and there's nothing special about what we do that's, you know, um, uh, entirely impossible, other than the fact we are very contingent on the origin of life. Um, and uh, so the only way to do it is create new origins of life in the lab, like create mini big bangs, like you could argue you're doing at CERN. So, yes, yeah, so I think that that's probably clear. The other thing I think we're going to be able to do is, you know, I don't think humans are necessarily going to go to Mars, but I would like my life forms, you know, as I keep saying, I don't want to, I'm not a creationist, but I want to be one. And I mean that earnestly, actually, not as a joke. I would ask, what is the minimum information I can send to another planet to terraform the planets? What nano machine can I send to Mars to terraform Mars? Think about what happened on Earth. One mutation in one protein, terraform the planet, produce oxygen. We have Rubisco on planet Earth, another Earth-changing protein, nanoscale objects that undergoes catalysis. So I want to know what is the minimum payload I can send to Mars that will turn it into a living uh, um, system. Then I guess the next question, if I'm being really egocentric, and I'll be so long dead, who cares? How do I encode some of our culture into it? Oh, interesting. So you don't really abide to the theory that, like, you know, different planets, different evolutionary constraints, different values, but you'd actually like to see some of our kind of like the human contingent values that were kind of like pretty much uh, are like a collateral effect of the way that we grew up on this planet. Actually, you'd like them to see uh, supervene on different planets too? Well, I mean, no, I wouldn't. So the scientists in me would say, no, who cares? Let's just make life. Let's see what happens. The, the egotist in me would say, come on, let's make sure the human, if it's a war of selection, Let's just try and make sure that our culture survives in the universe, right? What is it about our culture that is, allows, you know, could we propagate? It's a really interesting question. I, I mean, I, like, I would just settle for terraforming a planet with a new life form, but let's go a bit further. I, and I just, I would also like to know what plays out. If we do it again, do we get very similar systems? Do we get Twitter again? You know, do, do we get memes? How long does it take intelligence to evolve? I've got a sneaking suspicion that, that, Earth is below average in intelligence. I, it took a longer time to get to intelligence on Earth than on a lot of other planets because of the gravity and the time and the fact we had to invent, invent oxygen metabolism. Um, it's not a given that oxygen metabolism needs to be invented on, on other planets, right? Oxygen metabolism took a billion years. So if they're smarter, where are they? Um, they're just going farther away. Interstellar travel is just really hard. I mean, you know, there's no magic, right? I don't. And Eric, Eric Weinstein thinks we go faster than light. Light, that's just nonsense. We can't. Light is a basic, the light speed sets a limit in the universe for the propagation of causation. And so, uh, sadly, they are getting further away. But that doesn't mean we can't find indirect evidence for them by finding exoplanets, building observatories. Or we might be able to find a couple of examples that purposefully send information in a directed beam. They'll make take, take, make may take many generations to get there for, for them to send something back. But I think it's going to take the act of us 
observing one, sending information, and then sending it back, all them doing the same thing to us. And yeah, that's what you're seeing. But Lee, at a fraction of light speed, the galaxy could have been uh, settled a hundred or a thousand times over in the course of evolutionary timescales. So that's presuming that the universe had the capability to become intelligent earlier. And I think I can prove on the back of an envelope that you need a certain number of states in the universe before it's even capable of producing intelligence. And I think this is a thing, right? I would love the... I wonder if intelligence in the universe only became possible relatively recently and we're already moving quite far apart. So make this kind of hopping thing that we want to do a little bit hard. I'm not sure I I understand or believe in the oh. grabby aliens idea, but we should, you know, they might come. They might well, still come. We, we might still popular, be populated by aliens anytime now. Um. Okay, Creon is muting himself here. That's interesting. Um, well, uh, if people are interested in the Grabby Alien idea, then uh, check out our two podcasts ago. We had Robin Hansen on to discuss this idea a little bit further. Uh, I think I could like drill endlessly on. Like, okay, so one question I, I I do need to ask this. One question is if you, as Lee the creationist, um, you know, is a somewhat kind of like a species chauvinist in the sense that you'd like to impose human values on other planets too, um, then you know, no, just my values, not human values. Just oh, my, I'm oh well. What about okay. sorry, go with <laughs> much better, much better. I, I'm sorry, apologies. Well, um. So how do you think that's even stable? Because supposedly different life forms that are just more adapted to these environments, um, you know, are just like have an evolutionary advantage. And so they will propagate faster. And with that, their values will also also propagate faster, right? So how can you even create a stable human value set on a planet that, uh, you know, isn't kind of like, you know, made to facilitate that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the answer is that you probably can't, but you could do something that's kind of interesting. If you knew enough about how evolution worked, how the game engine of evolution worked, I would probably game the environment. If I could go to that planet, I would set the planet up so that when things evolved, they would create, you know, lots of, uh, I don't know, uh, they, they would basically rediscover our culture. But it would require us to do some quite interesting reverse engineering and planting lots of Easter eggs and then, yeah, so they could go there. Um, I'm sorry. You have to make a, a perfect simulation of the earth, right? Like, otherwise, you'll always get like bits and pieces that will over time create very, very, very different. Um, Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, you don't want precision. You just want, you want the, I mean, look, I don't know. So I'm wondering. So the reason why I'm talking about culture and values is I don't even know what these things are precisely. I couldn't mathematically define them. And maybe the act is thinking about, you know, because culture is a real thing. It's, it, exists right we write it down you know it comes scotland people wear kilts have haggis drink whiskey i mean these are physical things there might be other cultural points so these have an information content associated with them and they've been propagated due to you know um, historical reasons and it might be that if you start a life from scratch you because you depend that a life form has to have full um, access to the face space that it's not possible for a culture to be emerge and to be proper to be copied. All cultures are unique to the planet in which they emerge. But that's an experiment worth doing, right? Sure. I mean, like usually you have evolutionary game theory, right? And then you have like, you know, some evolutionary psychology. Then you have people that like are like, no, actually it's much more about uh, like literally like more culturally contingent. And so I think that, you know, all of this, 
research at least suggests that, you know, even tweaking the environment by tiny bits uh, leads you to pretty different value theories. Like there's a really interesting um, blog post from Elia Zukowski on um, baby eating aliens where um, I don't want to give the bond away, but like basically a human, a human spacefaring um a uh, spacefaring colony encounters aliens is appalled by their moral uh, behaviors. They eat their own babies. Uh, likewise, other alien species are appalled by human cultural habits. Um, and it's really what is evolutionary adaptive, right? That like that creates much of the values, like kind of like percolating outward. Um, but yeah, maybe I mean, look, I'm all for um for making a few experiments and and figuring out if you're a creationist human, uh, not human, but like if 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 Lee values are evolutionary adaptive and if they can outcompete uh, whatever is uh, is perhaps more native to uh, to to that planet. So let's run the experiment. I'm game. I mean, is, you know, you can ask, you could quickly ask the question: Does some of our cultures find uh, implicitly encoded in the fine structure constant? Yeah, right. well, we'll see. We'll check back in with you uh, in uh, how many years, would you say? Like you said, a few millennia? Yeah, I think a few millennia. We should definitely just, just origin of life, both Mars and Venus. Great. Well, no risks there whatsoever. Um, okay, wonderful. Well, uh, on that cheery note, I'll hand it off to Beatrice to get more into the existential hope section of this podcast. Um, Beatrice, the stage is yours. Yeah, we're we're going to make like a left turn. Uh, and get a bit, um, well, I'm not going to say more philosophical because I feel like we've been pretty out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's get like concrete about like thinking about what your science and what your work can do for the future. Um, cause the idea of this podcast is pretty much to like get people onboarded to the idea that positive futures are possible, uh, which hopefully you'll agree with. And, um, yeah, trying to understand like what your work also can help like create for the future. So um, we've talked about your background and and your current work. And so are you like excited about the future? And can you share if you've had one, like an experience that made you feel excited about the future? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm probably even more on the exponential future than you guys are on regard to how the universe has to create. You know, I'm not one of these subscribers to the e-death of the universe. In fact, I can probably explain why physics has gone wrong and not sound like a lunatic. And, and, hey, please um, do. Please do now. Okay, well, um, the second law isn't correct, okay, because time is, is fundamental and the universe is expanding and the, the energy of the universe is increasing because of that expansion. And so if, if the energy of the universe has increased the expansion, just how it is. So there are four beliefs that you, the, the physicists have, right? Number one is that there is a big bang in which there was entropy, low entropy at the beginning. That seems a bit weird. Second one is that there's a second law to give you a clock. Third one is that time is emergent. And the, the fourth one is that, um, causation is emergent. Um, you could replace all those things with one thing that time is fundamental and you get rid of the other three. Time is fundamental. The universe is expanding in states, so it's expanding all the time, and there's more resources coming. That's time, states, for you to build things with, and we'll see that objects in the universe, yes, they get further apart. Yes, there's a problem there, but the universe doesn't have to end in the heat death. It's going to end in a kind of, it's not going to end. It's just building more and more objects, and that's what we see on Earth. Um, that, so that's kind of why I'm a uh, I'm a eternal optimist because I think the second law cannot be correct. It's a misstatement of the asymmetry of the universe and time. 
Well, that's a very big claim. Um, well, I can prove it, I think. I mean, it has to be proven experimentally. and Otherwise, it's just nonsense, right? I might as well just join Eric Weinstein and go faster than I. Uh, well, go beat myself. <laughs> on a, I think on a hopeful note, though, like one of the things that um, I always got to kick out, and I think actually Creon was also <laughs> in this podcast, um, and brought me to that, is the last question by Asimov. Uh, it's sci-fi, but um, but it's a pretty, I think, interesting, uh, interesting sci-fi. Sorry if you if you if you're interested in the heat death of the universe or like trying to overcome that. But um, okay, sorry, Beatrice, I didn't want to jump in here. Well, I think if it is true, I, it feels like good news that we're not going to end in a heat death. But I still want to know if there's, you know, how you feel about the if there was an event that made you feel excited about the future, or have you always just had that with you? No, the, the event was, yeah, so exactly. Well, I invented assembly theory. I was in NARA in Japan at an Origin of Life meeting. And I I couldn't really translate the mathematical structure had in my brain into words. So I could see um, how assembly theory works and how time works and how states work and complexity it was generated. I had all the algorithms, but I wasn't able to explain it to anyone. And then I was running through NARA and I remember running down some steps. And I was running down this, I run every day, five miles every day. And I was running down the steps and I was able to conceptualize uh, the graphs and the math. And, and I suddenly realized that um, I could explain why the future wasn't closed. And that for me was a, what probably the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. It's kind of sad to say, but it was really exciting. It's like it was a singular insight that I had one morning. And just it was like, shit, it, it's, my idea of the universe is never going to be the same again. And that's, that's when it happens. Well, yeah, that sounds very... Uh, and is this like something that gets you generally excited about the future or are there other things that you can like try to to gain to try to onboard someone? Is there like a book? Is there a movie um, or like... So what... Yeah, me, yeah, not really. I think just understand it. I'm really infinitely curious. So I'm always like... I, I was like, why did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? I have a... I mean, I have a... I think my son for a PhD student is probably in my lab now because I've had about 80 PhD students come through and I still don't get bored supervising PhD students. There are so many questions. Um, I do like Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. I like that. I like some of the sections in that, how you can focus in on things to basically find something interesting and even the most boring objects. Um, I don't know. I just find if you, I guess I have three techniques I use for um, being optimistic. It's like, you know, because we are deterministic machines and we are built in more. If it wasn't for the, if it wasn't the, for the intrinsic asymmetry of the universe, we would not, this entire conversation would be nothing because it's already pre programmed by physics. But this conversation means something because it's not been programmed by physics, yet the universe is deterministic. So how can the universe be deterministic but undetermined? Super interesting problem. And that's what curiosity is a measure of, is that thing, is in this echo state. So I tell people, you are boring because you're going around the same thing. Um, go to new places, just walk backwards. <laughs> go to new, uh, meet new people and, and, and find new objects. So, you know, places, people, and objects. Find new ones of those and mix them up. Um, then uh, uh, I think that that will keep you infinitely curious. Because there are so many, there's always new things you can do. And again, in the universe, a block universe, they call it, um, 
there's no point in doing it. There's no curiosity doesn't exist in a block you list. It's just a lookup table. I, I'm, I'm a curiosity person, not a lookup table. I think, I mean, curiosity certainly seems to be what makes like the, the best scientists and technologists in general. Um, if you, um, if you think about like, I mean, it's, it would be almost fun to use this places, people's and objects, uh, um, system of looking at it. But if you think of like the best possible future ever, uh, and this hopefully entails like some of your work in it as well, like the computing and all of this, uh, do you have a vision of like existential hope for the future? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, look, I, I do think so. we are in a really good future. I know we've got this problem right now. There's a, there, we've just come out of a pandemic. There's a war. Um, but all the metrics are, are pretty good, right? I find it amusing when people worrying about um, climate change and social media and stuff. All I can see is people being more industrious, getting, getting better, us learning to be more respectful of one another. We're, our, our cultural layers are getting richer and more interesting. So I think... Um, we will get to the kind of ex- the kind of exponential kind of whatever. Um, what's the word? That it's a, not, not just abundance, but there's an abundance on different different levels right now. Um, we will get there in steps, right? Because the planet does have the capability of supplying the resources we need. I see that we're in an interesting game, right from the Stone Age when we went into the Bronze Age and tried to build a technology. When you're leaping from one technology to the other, you've got to basically not mess it up so you don't go all the way back to the Stone Age. And so it's about making a mess and cleaning it up, making a mess and cleaning it up, making a mess and cleaning it up. So when people make me feel guilty about flying on the web, I don't know, I'm making a mess on purpose. I am cleaning it up. Um, I, one of the first things I did when the pandemic, they sort of took a flight from the UK to San Francisco to meet a billionaire to talk about how we get CO2 out of the atmosphere. I did feel really about that because I had got on the plane and wanted to talk to them. It would be designing new nano machines to basically convert CO2 into diamonds, which is kind of like the best way to do it, right? It's the densest material. So, no, I think you're going to do it in layers. Uh, um, we're going to have some stumbles along the way because uh, every time we invent a new technology, we hack that technology to cause chaos. <laughs> Boy, we're causing some chaos right now. Yeah, uh, making a mess and cleaning it up, uh, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a good way to do it. We're going to take all the plastic out of the oceans. We're going to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere. We took the CFCs out of the atmosphere. You know, it's, 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 it's not, it's not that, it's not beyond the wit of humanity to do it, right? But the right now, it's not that pressing. The real, the real problem to solve is when the sun engulfs the earth. That's the real climate change we have to worry about. That's going to be a hard one to, to fight, probably. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have like. Oh, I don't think so. No. I mean, what? How can you got? A, it's a, it's a. If you've got a billion years advanced warning, you've got to do something to the the orbit of the Earth. So you've got to have a propulsion system. You've got a billion years. It doesn't have to be that much energy over a billion years. You can plan ahead. It's not that hard. Or, or yeah. in a fraction of a billion years, the Earth would just be like a place we no longer live because we've got other places to live. I, I maybe, but I think it'll be easier just to move the earth and to go somewhere else. I mean, that sounds very nice. I hope we can get the coordination there. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, so we can an asteroid while flying something into it. We can, we could, like, you know, what I could do if we really wanted to is get a massive asteroid from the asteroid belt, lob it at the earth, you know, and do it in such a way that it wasn't, it's just a glancing blow. I'd play billiards or pool, as you call it. 
be fine. How do you love it at the earth without destroying the earth? Oh, that's that's not my problem. That's like a couple of billion years away. They'll organize that. Come on. <laughs> you really think it's easier to move a planet than to go to a planet, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Think of the, I mean, I haven't done much calculations because I've tried to solve problems, you know, like getting out of bed in the morning. But if you think about the orbit of the Earth, so the speed of the Earth and the mass of the Earth, we should be able to calculate what propulsion would need to move the orbit systematically over a billion years. I mean, this is cool, right? It's like not as hard. It's uh, a big uh, problem. I, I, it's always fun when you hear very like out there futuristic ideas that you've never heard of. I've never heard of moving. Uh, I just made uh, it up because you asked the question. <laughs> so, you know, it means like I thought about shifting it because I watched this very interesting Chinese um, movie on the wandering earth. Like, That's bullshit. And then I went to calculate it. Oh, no, it's not. The way they did it was bullshit. But you could move the, you, you could change the orbit. They did it wrong. They left the solar system. That's impossible. Um, but and so if we try to jump ahead then like maybe not necessarily all the way until we have to move the earth but are there any like um other technologies i know i mean we've already talked about like computing uh, and this but are there any um technologies or specific um developments in science or governance structures or anything you think we need like to work yeah. on I I think that, I mean, I try to not talk about my own stuff to say that's needed for the future because that's just egotistical and boring and probably not correct. But I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure that Elon Musk will try and go to Mars with the computer. I'll sell him one, right? Because um, he needs to make drugs when he goes to Mars. But we'll probably have a computer on the moon. Um, so I, I think there are a couple of things to think about. Um, I would like to work out, uh, yeah, with new governing structures, well, we need to basically, I get. This is, a, this is a rabbit hole, but let's go there. I think we need to understand. So I don't think we're going to get to an AGON silicon because we don't understand what intelligence is. And so what we've got to try and do is go create a new life form, new origin of life, new life form, new intelligence quickly. We need to then work out once we've got a standard, the second point for intelligence, what intelligence is. Then we need to somehow use that intelligence to basically ask, how can you, if you take the ego out of that intelligence, how would we be able to use that to help us govern the planet, right? Because politicians are not the correct way to govern a structure, right? You need some kind of peer-to-peer, fairly algorithmic. You know, I like the idea where as, you know, one person, one vote. Well, if I walk across a domain boundary and my, my taxation moves with me, so now I wander into San Francisco for one day and it knows what my preferences are, then basically I, taxes get shifted in some way and then probably policy gets shifted. I'd like to do that. Um, the other thing I'd like to do is create... Um, consciousnesses in different uh, substrates to find out what commonalities there are for problem solving. So I think moving compute, moving supercompute into chemicals is something I'm interested in doing because I think it will solve problems faster. Um, and also you can reboot them faster. The problem with the human brain is you reboot it, you get up for murder. But if you basically take a consciousness and substantiate it in some chemistry, then you can reboot it. Having said that, though, maybe that consciousness will disagree with you. You have to give it some right, some not human rights, but some type of uh, universal. Uh, gosh, yeah, that's a, that's a bummer. I will be known known as some kind of you know um, uh, kind of chemical fascist. Kill or reset all chemicals. But no, in all seriousness, I think that we have to do something on governance structures to remove um, the bad incentives we have right now. But that should be easy. 
But I think what might be quite hard is to instantiate intelligence in long silicon frameworks. We do not know. This is one of the big mysteries. We do not know the mechanism that gives us intelligence. It's not, it's not just mathematics. It doesn't mean it won't be understandable using mathematics, but there is something below Turing Church thesis, which is that which enables intelligence to exist, which is kind of crazy. And, and, and thinking about this, I mean, are there any, any major risks or challenges that you think are going to be like the, the hurdles that we have to really consider um, in mind? I think that all the all the risks of us killing ourselves in nuclear power, nuclear war, and stuff like that are just massively overblown. I mean, who cares if humans don't exist in a billion years, right? That our technology will—I mean, humans won't exist in a billion years. Um, some some echo of us will exist if we kill ourselves through uh, if we have an event through nuclear war, then something else will emerge. Like the planet's not gone; the planet has a really long lifespan. So I think we just don't, we keep obsessing about our local um, culture and not understanding a more a deeper culture and time. And even like some of these, you know, billionaire projects that are thing that like this uh, Millennium Cock or whatever it's called, um, aren't going to capture it. The yeah. only way we're going to really get there is by self-replicating, self-aware organisms. Um, so I'm not worried at all. No, I mean, what can happen? What's the worst that can happen? A meteor, a meteor will hit the planet. We have nuclear war. I, I mean, sure, but that would cause lots of suffering at human level, but it won't cause lots of suffering. Long. Evolution doesn't care. You know, you involve a population, you die alone. That's what I tell my research group anyway. Probably shouldn't say it quite like that. But so as long as there's life, you don't, yeah, that's that's a good outcome. I think so. I mean, I'm trying to be as unhuman about it as possible, right? Of course, I don't want there to be a nuclear war. I don't want people to starve. I don't want there to be unnecessary suffering. But actually, suffering has occurred for billions of years for evolution to occur. I think we can beat that. I don't think we should inflict suffering on one another. We know better, right? So that's why those views come in. But um, I think that we kind of obsess about, you know, the negative and, oh, we're, you know, a minute to doomsday. If the green, if the Greenland, uh, you know, ice sheet or when it melts, the sea level is going to go up. So we better get away from the ocean, right? You, you know, there's a lot. It's, 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 there are things you could see them happening, right? It's not tricky. I would not be, I'd probably buy some real estate in Miami for, you know, for a few years, maybe just a hundred years, but I wouldn't buy real estate in Miami to have in 200 years time because it will be underwater. Well, um, so we're, I'm going to jump ahead because we're running a little bit out of time. But um, if, you know, we, we um, the word you catastrophe, um, which means like the opposite of a catastrophe. Uh, so that's an event that after it's happened, uh, we have just much higher value in this world. Um, and this word is something that uh, with existential whole project, we uh, we try to find like a better word for it because people just hear catastrophe when you say you catastrophe. Uh, so, do you have any suggestions on that? Oh, and it's very okay if you don't. We can just jump ahead. I'd have to think. It's, I would call it a creating something, right? So you want to create a. I mean, a, or I don't know. I would have to think. I don't have a decent word, but yeah, you should use that word. It it, it does get me wrong. Wrong impression, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, 
I think there's a couple of things you should think we should think about is that we're going to get pretty good at synthetic biology soon, if not now, ready to be able to to um, create turn many more photons into food, which I think is going to be amazing, right? You know, I think probably within a very short space of time. I mean, I think that arguably no one should starve on Earth right now because we have enough food, but we'll really get to the point where that's the case. And I do think that we're going to get to the point where we're not. We don't. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure where I stand on the physical limits of human human aging and things, but I think we might get to a point where we're able to predict or treat or understand most disease, and therefore um, get to a point where human suffering just doesn't exist anymore. Like like none. We'll all be high all the time. <laughs> so, so that, I don't that's your- that as in, Sorry, like a zombie fire. I mean, that as in we'll have such good detection systems, we'll know if you're about to get cancer, we'll do something about that. We'll know if you're about to get seriously ill, we'll do something about We'll just have so much knowledge, we'll be able to intervene, so the amount of suffering will go down. And I think that will be a great thing, I think. That would basically be like a you, that's your example of a you catastrophe, like a very, um, or like the synthetic biology thing or something. Yeah, I, that would be my example. Yeah, I yeah. think it's entirely tangible that it'll happen. Well, that's good because you know um, what we try to do with this podcast is also, uh, um, you know, we try to create an art piece based on your uh, prompt here. So because you know, trying to actually um, get people excited about the future, um, you know, art can be very helpful. And so uh, if this. You know, if you can try to be as specific as possible about your catastrophe, that something that you think could make a great art piece. Well, I can tell you, I tell you one thing. When I was eight years old, what I used to dream of, right, was um, like 49, right, going on 99, but I'm 49. And when I was eight years old, I used to dream of a world where all the digital, all, all the, everything was connected to everything else. And I would be able to see around, around the other side of the planet and I would be able to get access to compute and do stuff and talk to people. And in my lifetime, it's happened. I mean, it's happened like exponentially. Absolutely amazing that it's happened. And uh, it's going to continue. So I, I think it's a really good one. But I think with regards to um, understanding our environment, it's going to happen again, right? The same thing. Uh, well, that, that's a, actually, it's a good one to to remind us of um, EU catastrophes that have happened also. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I, I think... This can make a great art piece. We'll see what the what the artist makes of it. Uh, I'll share it with you when it's done. Um, yeah. Do Do you um, want to maybe round off, Alison? Well, we usually we ask the question, "What is the best advice you ever got?" But I think I want to ask you a different question because I think within literally the span of an hour, um, you have kind of uh, really. I think not disappointed in playing controversial bingo uh, and and literally having a non-standard view on everything from computing to origin of life to consciousness, climate change, aging. Um, and then I think the big one was the second law of thermodynamics. So I do eventually really want to get someone on to debate you on these bits. Um, that's beyond the scope of this podcast. 
But I want to ask you one question, which is, um, you know, usually people get asked the question of like, I think it was one of Teal's questions of like, uh, what is the number one thing that you disagree with, um, with society or with the mainstream view? I'm not going to ask you this. You've done a fair about a bit of this already, but I do want to ask you um, the opposite question of like, is there one thing that you totally agree with, with the mainstream? Totally agree with the mainstream. Yeah. Um, the periodic table exists. Yeah, I mean, the, the periodic, I, I do think we should be nicer. We should be nicer to each other. I mean, but absolutely agree with the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I agree with lots of things in the mainstream. Just, just um, not, uh, I don't know. I mean, I certainly agree that um, we have a problem of uh, bias and understanding our democracies and other other ways people make decisions, I suppose. And that's coming out, you know. And I I do agree that we are kind of we are kind of dopamining ourselves into a kind of idiotic. But Elon Musk is going to solve that now, or no, he's not. He's going to basically Elon Musk is about to end the world on Twitter. <laughs> Maybe we should keep, we should remove this in podcast. Um, no, I just I think I totally agree that um, things are getting better um, and we're getting better connected. But um, and I'm just excited. Man, if only that was a mainstream view. I don't think that most people agree that things are getting better. But uh, it is certainly, I think, a more mainstream view. And let's say that we're the- evolved to think that we're things are scared, right? Because we are scared of dying, right? Of course, we're always going to be on that side. That's just really predictable. Okay, well, let's make that a mainstream view then. Um, we have three more minutes left and uh, Korean has a question. Yeah, I have a lot of questions and I don't have enough time. So I'm just going to, instead of asking questions, because Lee and I have sparred occasionally, I want to say, Lee, I have the hugest respect for you and your work and your lab and your ideas especially in the chemical domain, but, you know, all of them. And I really appreciate you being you. And uh, thank you for that. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say, because I don't have time for the questions. I have questions about computer, computers and, and, you know, these kinds of things. But um, uh, they're out of scope for this existential hope thing. Well, look, I will take it upon me to perhaps get a debate going, at least on the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, look, you know, like Fawcett definitely has some overlap with the early extropian communities uh, that uh, were at least trying to, you know, go against entropy, uh, you know, nevertheless, like accepting it as a thing. Um, and, you know, there, there, there was some interesting, I think, like um, previous faucets discussion about like mining back holes for energies and, and, and so forth. So I definitely, I think, agree with the general spirit. <laughs> um, and perhaps we can actually, um, we can debate like the, Yeah, the underlying foundation a bit uh, in, a, in a future one. It's definitely beyond the scope of the last two minutes. Uh, but we maybe do get to the final question, which is, uh, what is the best advice you ever got? Best advice ever got is just uh, keep asking why. <laughs> From when I found myself at, um, in a special school where I wasn't allowed to go on to university and they said, why? And in the end, they went, I'll take the camp. It's just like, I think why is a very good why is a good tool? Why not? Why can I not do this? Tell me why and convince me why. Well, why actually, I think those questions are really different though, because I think in Germany oftentimes people ask why. They ask like, why you? Why now? Why this? 
And I think in here in the Bay Area, these usually the question that you get is like, oh, why not? Yeah, why, why not do this? And I think it is a actually pretty different question to ask why versus yeah. like, why not? And I do agree like on a scientific angle. One like, closes down the state space, which is not how the universe is. The one opens up the state space, which is way in the, why the universe is. We might as well ask questions that are commensurate with how the universe is. Yeah. And I think an engineering approach is an interesting one because I think that is more the why not question a little bit. You know, like it is uh, definitely this question of like, okay, why, why could I not uh, just uh, try to rebuild this uh, and through that and learn a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, okay, wonderful. Well, Lee, thank you so, so much for joining. Thanks everyone for having such an active chat. Um, I, I'm sure it wasn't the last time. I look forward to seeing you in about two weeks in person at Faye. Um, uh, and looking forward to having Sarah on as well. And yeah, thanks everyone for joining. It was uh, definitely a pleasure. This was quite wild. Uh, and um, it wasn't the last time I'm sure that we hear from you. 